Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen and brothers and sisters. I'm really glad to be here with you again on the second day of the Page Lectures. It's always a joy to come to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. There's something vibrant about your community. You're interested in the things of God and the deep things of the faith, and it's great to have interaction with you. I enjoyed my time with the students yesterday and now here today. This is going to be a little different lecture than yesterday's uh, in that I want to step back and take a wider view of the whole Reformation and ask a question. What did the Reformers think they were doing? What did they think they were about? I think actually that's a neglected question in Reformation studies these days. I want to try to address it from a couple of different angles. Because this year, the 500th anniversary, of course, of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Castle Church store in Wittenberg, this year the Reformation is being remembered, renounced by some, regretted by others, celebrated, commemorated, analyzed. You know, Catholics don't like to use the word celebrate. Uh, Cardinal Kulk, uh, who is the head of the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, somebody said, well, is the Catholic Church going to celebrate the Reformation this year? He said, oh, no, you can't celebrate sin. Now, he didn't say all the sin was on the part of the Lutherans. He, maybe the Catholics were partly sinful too, but you don't want to celebrate sin, he said, the division of the church. So uh, there are many different ways the Reformation is being approached. A new, relatively new emphasis is on what's called reforming from below. This aims to give voice to groups in the 16th century that have been marginalized in much of Reformation historiography until now. Women, peasants, dissenters, Jews, even Muslims. Yes, there were Muslims coming into Europe in the 16th century for the first time. Uh, and so to give these people who've been neglected, what, what, what are they thinking? How did the Reformation impact them? There's a whole train of scholarship that does that. And then, of course, you can study the Reformation as an event in political history. Uh, it witnessed the end of feudalism, medieval feudalism, and the rise of the modern nation-state. Absolutism in countries like Spain and France and England. That uh, young Henry VIII said, this England is an empire. We can study all of those relationships, and it's worth doing. Economically, you can study intellectual history, history of ideas, study cultural history, art history. All that's good. I'm not against any of it. But in pursuing those kinds of inquiries, it is possible to lose sight of what the reformers themselves actually thought they were about. What made them tick? How did they understand the movement of which they were a part? Now, because the Reformation encompassed so many different things, uh, a lot of people now are, this is a new trend, are starting to talk about not the Reformation, but Reformations. 
You can look and find a lot of book titles now, the Reformations of the 16th century. And by that, of course, they mean there was a Lutheran Reformation, there was a Zwinglian, a Calvinist, an Anglican, a Radical, even a Catholic Reformation. There's also the Reformation of the common man, Thomas Munzer, the peasants of Germany. The Reformation of the princes who led change from above, not from below. The Reformation of the cities. The cities played a really important role in the 16th century, a time of urban advance. And then the Reformation of the refugees. That's a big thing in our world today. Uh, refugees, asylum seekers. Well, there were many of them in the 16th century. Uh, fleeing persecution, a lot of them. Many of them became Protestants and brought about great religious change. There's a way of studying the Reformation through these kind of figures as well. But I want to go back today uh, and uh, ask what did the Reformation mean to the people who were leading it, keeping in mind this statement by F.M. Powick. He was a great British historian of the early 20th century, more of a medieval historian, I think, than a Reformation historian. But this is what he said, a vision or an idea is not to be judged by its value for us but by its value to the person who had it. Now, it may not be the whole truth, but it's a good place to begin. Don't always say, well, what does this mean to us? What does this mean to me? We want to contemporize before we have listened well to what it actually meant to the people who were in the throes of it. That's what I'm trying to do today. And here's how I want to do it. I want to begin by a little bit, uh, a small act of demolition. You know, the book of Jeremiah starts with this image of tearing up, plucking up. And I want to start with some demolition. I want to start with some sanctified destruction of three myths about the Reformation. Three ideas that are very current. Some of you might believe them. I don't know. But I hope you don't believe them when I finish, because I'm going to destroy them, one after the other. And then that won't take too long. Once, once we get these myths of the Reformation out of the way, we can turn in a more constructive way, build up, not just tear down, what the Reformers thought they were about. And I want to do that by looking at the Reformation through four angles of vision. Four angles of vision. Well, we start with the... The demolition, the, the ref, three Reformation myths. The first one is this. I bet you've heard this. The Reformation divided the church. The Reformation divided the church. This idea is as old as the 16th century. It was the centerpiece in that classic exchange between Cardinal Jacopo Sadoletto and John Calvin in 1539. And by the way, if you want to get one little slender volume that contains the heart of the argument, Catholic versus Protestant in the 16th century, I recommend you get this little book called A Reformation Debate. It's in paperback. I think it's still available which really reproduces these two treatises by Sadoletto, who was a Catholic cardinal, and John Calvin, the reformer of Geneva. Well, Sadoletto charged that Calvin and his fellow reformers were tearing the seamless robe of Christ into little pieces. They were dividing the church. Which not even, Sadoletto said, the 
pagan soldiers at the foot of the cross had done to the robe of Jesus. They didn't divide it. They gambled over it. But you're ripping it apart. Calvin replied to Sadaleto, and his reply was an appeal to antiquity. All we have attempted has been to renew that ancient form of the church. Now, the church that Calvin had in mind is the one revealed in the scriptures primarily, but also evident in the early centuries of the Christian era, in the age of Chrysostom and Basil the Great and Cyprian and Ambrose and Augustine, the church of the ancient Christian teachers. Now, the fact that the Reformation did entail the rupture of Western Christendom is not in question. But who had left whom and why would be debated between Catholics and Protestants for centuries to come. It still is today. However, this is the point I want to make. The division of Christianity, the fracturing of Christianity, did not begin in the 16th century. Schism is not the result of the Reformation. It is its genesis and point of departure. Not to rehearse the many divisions in the church of the first millennium, just to go back to 1054, that split between the churches of the East and the West left a gaping hole in church unity, one that still remains today despite many efforts of reconciliation between Eastern Orthodoxy and the Roman Catholic Church. Still that division is there. Or just in the West, the pontificate of Boniface VIII ended with what we call the Babylonian captivity, a period of 70 years from 1309 to 1377, when the papacy was no longer in Rome, but in France at Avignon. This was followed by the Western schism, 1378 to 1417, where you had two and then eventually three separate popes all claiming to be the sole vicar of Christ on earth, each excommunicating one another. This was a crisis. This was division in the church. The crisis of the multi-papacy, if we can call it that, was resolved finally in 1417 at the Council of Constance by the election of Pope Martin V. But that also did not bring... Uh, unity back to the church because you have in Bohemia the Hussite revolt. You have in England the suppression of the Lollard descent, John Wycliffe and his followers. Not to say the persecution of the Waldensians in France and Italy and of the Alumbrados in Spain. All of this continues to mar the image of the church as the seamless robe of Christ. Now, this is a little controversial, but you think about it. One way to understand the Reformation is to see it as an effort to overcome the brokenness of the late medieval church. As, an, as a movement for Christian unity based on the recovery of a besieged Catholicity. And... There was some effort in that direction on both sides. On the Protestant side, people like Philip Melanchthon and Martin Bootser. On the Catholic side, Cardinal Contarini and Cardinal Serapondo. There were others. 
Now, it is certainly true that that movement did not succeed in the sense that it did not repair the rift that was already there. But it's important to understand that it was never Luther's idea to set out to establish a brand new church from scratch. He wanted to reform the one holy Catholic and apostolic church on the basis of the word of God. And so did John Calvin and all of the reformers who followed in their train. So that's a myth that the Reformation divided the church. The Reformation inherited a divided church, tried to repair it to some extent, did not succeed. And so we're left with the situation we have today. Now, number two, second myth. Luther was the first modern man. Have you ever heard that? Luther was the first modern man. In 1971, the 450th anniversary of Luther's famous Here I Stand, So Help Me God speech at the Diet of Worms was being celebrated, and Reformation scholars from all around the world came to St. Louis, Missouri for the Fourth International Congress on Luther Research. The keynote speaker was Gerhard Abling. He was a leading Luther scholar and a former student of Rudolf Bultmann. And he reminded his listeners there of a depiction of the Reformation that came from the philosopher Hegel. Hegel had referred to the Reformation as the all-illuminating sun, which follows that daybreak at the end of the Middle Ages. In other words, Luther was a precursor of the Enlightenment. He stood against the authoritarian darkness and superstition of the Middle Ages and so helped his fellow Europeans to break through to, quote, civilizational maturity. We might want to question how mature that civilization was in the 20th century, but that's what the idea was. And this was picked up by a lot of people. Um, Thomas Carlyle a great Scottish savant of the 19th century, wrote a book called Heroes and Hero Worship, in which he touts Martin Luther and his refusal to recant at Vorms, here I stand, as the greatest moment in the modern history of man. Had Luther not stood there in that moment, everything would have been lost, Carlyle said. English Puritanism, the French Revolution, European civilization, even parliamentary democracy, all of this would have been gone. But of course, Luther did stand strong and therefore we have all these wonderful things. Luther did not desert us. Here in America, uh, Carlisle's best friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, also gave Luther honorable mention in his famous essay, Self-Reliance. Now, if there's any essay in which Luther does not belong, it's one called Self-Reliance. But there he is. With all the other great self-reliers, the achievers in history that Emerson is touting, Pythagoras, Socrates, Copernicus, yes, Jesus is there, Galileo, Newton, and Luther. Luther, the first modern man. Now, a lot of people have picked this up uh, with more nuance than Carlyle and Emerson, and some of the great names in modern intellectual history belong here. People like uh, Max Weber, with his disenchantment and secularization thesis, or Wilhelm Diltai with his focus on individualism and freedom, or Karl Hall focusing on conscience. Adolf von Harnack, another one, the Zion of German liberal Protestantism, summed up this progressive, optimistic model of the Reformation by saying the Reformation 
was the beginning of the modern age, and it started on October the 31st, 1517, inaugurated by the blows of the hammer on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. He wrote those words in 1923. That was the year of the failed beer hall putsch led by Adolf Hitler in Munich. Now, there were some counter voices. We should acknowledge that. People like Ernst Trelch, who saw the Reformation not leaning into modernity, but leaning backward into the medieval period, more authoritarian than liberating, more transcendental than imminent. Now, as a matter of fact, Trelch had no more sympathy than Harnock for the traditional theological doctrines of the Reformation. For him, its Catholicity was something to be embarrassed about and something to be transcended and eliminated by the forward march of progressive Protestantism. But Trelch was right when he interpreted the major break in the Christian culture of the West as taking place not in the 16th century with the Reformation, but in the 18th century with the Enlightenment. The worldview of medieval Catholicism, which since Petrarch had been called the Dark Ages, everything from Augustine to Dante, the Dark Ages, was to be transcended. And Trelch rightly saw that the dawn of this, in a way, was not in the Reformation, but in the Renaissance. That's the movement you want to focus on. And so Erasmus is more important than Luther in this way of thinking. Well, let me mention one other brilliant naysayer. I tell our students at Beeson, there are two theologians, there are two thinkers every single one of you need to know before you graduate. They are, I could put Luther in, but I usually give them Calvin because we require them to read all the institutes. Calvin and Nietzsche. Calvin and Nietzsche. Nietzsche was more the prophet for the 21st century than the 20th. And rather than discovering the roots of modernity in the Reformation, when he looked back, he saw it as a challenge and a sign of contradiction to modernity. I think he was right there. He said this, If Luther had have been burned at the stake like Hus, the Enlightenment would perhaps have dawned somewhat earlier and with a more beautiful luster than we can now conceive. Nietzsche. Third myth on its way out. The Reformation was a German event. The Reformation was a German event. Now, I mentioned Erasmus a while ago. Erasmus was the prototypical European. It was Erasmus who first had the idea, wouldn't it be great if we could go anywhere in Europe without having a visa, a passport, open borders everywhere in Europe? That's what we have in the European community today. It's Erasmus. He's the father of the European community. Luther, on the other hand, didn't think in European terms. He thought in German terms. He was a German through and through. And you see that in the way in which his Bible, the Luther Bible of 1534, has had a shaping influence on the German language and German culture to this day. No doubt about it. And yet... I think it's a myth, it's a mistake to interpret the Reformation as a German event because, for one thing, there were other Reformations. There was a French Reformation and a Swiss Reformation, a Dutch Reformation, an English, even a Polish Reformation. 
And these all went in different ways and pursued their own interests. They weren't just echoes of Luther and the German Reformation. Germany itself would not become a united country until 1871. But those who brought Germany together as a new nation at that time did appeal back to Luther. They called him the first Lutheran. Goethe, the greatest German poet, said the Germans first became one people, one folk under Martin Luther. And yet this is an ambiguous history, isn't it? Uh, Because throughout German history, the figure of Martin Luther and his words have been co-opted by ideologies of both the left and the right, including publicists for National Socialism, who during the 1930s republished and disseminated Luther's deplorable and inexcusable writings against the Jews. The fact that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of Luther's most fervent disciples in the 20th century. He quotes Luther more than anybody else in his writings except the Bible. The fact that Bonhoeffer was arresting, arrested for helping Jews escape Hitler's grasp and later put to death for trying to bring down the Nazi state while reading Luther in prison. This shows, I think, something of the complicated legacy of Martin Luther with reference to Germany. But there are many good reasons to challenge the myth of the Reformation as an event that happened largely between the Elba and the Rhine. Indeed, from the outset, the Reformation was a global event. In April of 1521, the same month that Luther stood before the Emperor Charles V at Worms and said, Here I stand. Far away on the other side of the ocean... Ferdinand Magellan was completing his circumnavigation of the globe in the Philippine Islands. He was a forerunner of Columbus in the West, all of whom were interested in the name of the Christian faith of carrying that message to the far corners of the world using the newly invented mariner's compass to do so. It is true that the people who were really the pioneers of this let's get the message out to the far ends of the globe were not the Protestants but the Catholics, particularly the Jesuits, people like Francis Xavier who went to Japan and to China in the 16th century. But the Protestants also had this vision in their DNA from the beginning. It's a misreading of missionary history to say, You have the Reformation in the 16th century and then the great missionary expansion in the 18th and the 19th century. Because take a figure like William Carey. Dr. Ashford referred to the biography I wrote about Carey. He went to India in 1793. What did he think he was doing? He thought he was following in the footsteps of Martin Luther. And he did some of the same things in India Luther did in Germany, such as translate the Bible. For Carey, it was Bengali first, and then many, many dozens of languages of India and the East, including Chinese. One of the first Chinese translations of the Bible made by a friend of Carey. And he began to establish schools. They were concerned about education. So were the reformers. 
including both Luther and Carey, establishing schools not only for boys but also for girls. He worked to reform the evils in society and to uphold the sanctity of human life, including unborn life, and including, in the case of Carey, the protest against the burning to death of widows, a practice called sati. Why did he do these things? Well, he thought he was following very directly in the footsteps of the reformers of the 16th century. Now, my friend Philip Jenkins, a great historian of global Christianity, teaches at Baylor University now, has pointed out, today, Protestant churches in the Northern Hemisphere, both in Western Europe and in North America, are in decline. They've grown weak through accommodation to a secularized culture. At the same time, the theology and mission of the 16th century reformers today are finding new life in vibrant forms of spiritual revival in Africa, in Latin America, and other places in the global south. So if there is a future in our world today for vibrant, serious, alive, reformational theology, it may not be here in North America. It may be It is. It will be in places like Africa, parts of Asia, Latin America, where the Protestant message is growing uh, exponentially. About a year or so ago, I gave a lecture, I gave a week of lectures and sermons at the Reformed Evangelical Church in Jakarta, Indonesia, the largest Muslim-majority country in the world. It's an amazing church. We would call it a mega church. 3,000 people there. Dynamic, alive Christians. They have a school that goes K through PhD. They have a world-class concert hall. They have an art museum. The only church I've ever been to with a more impressive art collection than this church is the Vatican. This is a Bible-believing, reformational church in Jakarta, Indonesia. And they have branches in many other places in Asia as well, Kuala Lumpur, Hong Kong, Singapore. This is, this is happening in our time, and it is an extension of the Reformation, we might say in an unexpected way. Now let me, let me turn to this looking at what the Reformers thought they were doing, how they understood their movement. Four angles of vision. I'm presupposing here the two great principles of the Reformation, the material and the formal principle. John Stott gave the greatest definition of evangelicals I've ever heard. It's the shortest, the simplest, but the truest, he said, John Stott did. Evangelicals are gospel people and Bible people. There you have the material principle, the gospel, justification by faith alone, and the formal principle, the Bible. Sola Scriptura. And so when I talk about these four angles of vision, these are four angles of vision through which these two principles are refracted to give us an insight into how the Reformers understood what they were doing. Number one, the Reformation as divine initiative. The Reformation as divine initiative. Now, 
This is not, by and large, how we ourselves understand the Reformation in the modern world. We don't see it that way. Modern secular historiography certainly doesn't see it that way. Uh, We tend to see the Reformers in line of the great revolutionaries. Robespierre, French Revolution. Lenin, Russian Revolution. Che Guevara, leading a revolt. In fact, there's a word in German, Aufruhr, which is often applied to the Reformation. You could translate it revolt, commotion, riot, Aufruhr, disturbance. And we think of the Reformation as a revolutionary event that changed the course of human history by this kind of radical inversion of things. And so we tend to see the Reformers as great actors on the stage of history, great activists out to shake the world and overturn kingdoms. But I want to suggest to you this is not how they saw themselves or their work. And we miss something crucial if we do not take with full force the Reformers' own view of the providential direction of their movement. Somebody asked me yesterday at this library talk I gave to the students if I was a providentialist in my view of history. I said, I'm a chastened providentialist. I mean, we have to be careful. And, well, this was God here. Something else there. We have to be careful because we're not God, right? We're not omniscient. We don't know the motives of people's hearts. We can't determine everything. But as a Christian, as a believer, as a believing historian... When you stand back and you look at the course of Christian history from the apostles down to the present day, you have to understand that this is not just a bunch of stuff happening one thing after another caused by social, economic, and political forces. All that's at play. But behind and in between, there is an interweaving of divine providence. And this is exactly how the Reformers thought their movement came about. This is what Luther says. Somebody said, what did you do to bring about the Reformation? He said this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, which proves Luther was not a Southern Baptist, the word, capital W, so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. That was written in 1522. A few years earlier in 1519, he wrote a letter to Staupitz. God has seized me and is driving me and even leading me on, Luther wrote. I am not the one in control. I want to be at peace, but I am snatched up and placed in the middle of an uprising. Now, if you're a modern skeptical historian, you can look back. Well, that's just, they're they're just false humility. But I suggest we need to listen and take that really seriously. How they understood what they were doing and how they saw the hand of God interweaving in the events that were swirling all around them. Not only Luther, Calvin too. Now, Calvin was always more reticent to speak about himself than Luther. Uh, He was an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs. 
Luther, I don't know, he was E-something for sure. But Calvin did refer to his sudden conversion. We don't know a lot of details about it. We don't even know when it happened. But he said, God, by a sudden conversion, intervened in his life, subdued his mind, and made it teachable. A great word in the Reformed vocabulary, teachableness. When just a few years later, he was set upon by that fiery evangelist, Guillaume Farrell, who threatened the young scholar with a divine curse should he refuse to join the reforming cause in Geneva, Calvin summed up that fateful encounter by declaring, Thus God thrust me into the game. It was Farrell knocking on his door, threatening to bring down the curses of God on him. But it was God, not Pharrell, but God, who thrust me into the game. I think we have something to learn here. Calvin was not interested in making Calvinists or Luther Lutherans, though some of their followers did promote a kind of hero worship that would have made even Thomas Carlyle blush. But closer to the spirit of the Reformation are these words that Calvin wrote in 1543 to the Emperor Charles V. I think this is one of the great statements about the Reformation from the pen of Calvin. The restoration of the church in our day, he said, is the work of God. And no more depends on the hopes and intentions of men than the resurrection of the dead or any other miracle. It is the will of our master that his gospel be preached. Let us obey his command and follow whithersoever he calls. What the success will be is not ours to inquire. I want to come back to that at the end of this lecture. That what the success will be is not ours to inquire. That's the first angle of vision. The Reformation as divine initiative. Now the second one, the Reformation as spiritual struggle. I touched on this yesterday with Luther. I want to come back to it today because at the heart of Reformation spirituality is the experience of life as conflict, contention, trial, testing, assault. That word I talked about yesterday, anfektungen, that's so much a part of the vocabulary of Martin Luther, not only before his Reformation insights, but after as well. The devil never left him alone. He kept coming back again and again, a devouring adversary. And there was, Luther was a monk, I mentioned that, and there's a sense in which his monastic orientation always shaped his spirituality. He left the monastery, he renounced his monastic vows, he married a runaway nun, he had kids, that's true. But what he learned in the monastery stayed with him to the day he died. Now there was a triad that all monks knew had to do with the life of faith, the life of devotion. Three words, lexio, oratio, and contemplatio. You can tell what they mean if you don't know Latin, right? Lexio, that's reading. 
Oratio, that's praying. Contemplatio, contemplation. Luther, Luther inherited this. But he altered it and intensified it in a distinctive way. He did so by changing that last step in the triad, contemplatio, into tentatio. This temptation, this anfectungen, this struggle, this churning, raging battle in the soul of every believer, but also writ large in the apocalyptic struggle between God and Satan. And this continued to the very end of his life. As soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, Luther said, the devil will plague you more and more. And he is the one who will make a real doctor of you. And by his attacks will teach you to seek and love God's word. You know, when he was describing his great Reformation breakthrough, this was in the preface to his Latin works from 1545. Uh, he's talking about that text, Romans 1.17, which opened up to him the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He says, this text bothered me. This phrase, the righteousness of God, deeply bothered me. And I kept beating, hammering on it. Using the Latin word pulse bomb. I kept beating it, pummeling it. I wrestled with it. Until finally, that moment of brilliant insight when he realized the righteousness of God Paul was talking about there was not the righteousness by which God, in his active righteousness, punishes the unrighteous, the sinner but the righteousness by which God declares us to be righteous and imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of the merits of Jesus, not my merits, that insight that was so central in the doctrine of justification. It came about through hammering, through beating, pulse bomb. So you need more than a great knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, though that's a good place to start. You need more than that. You need more than the most recent commentary by the most brilliant scholar you can identify. You need more even than the Reformation commentary on Scripture that I'm the general editor of. That's not nice to have too. But you need more than all of these kind of academic resources when you really want to understand the Bible. It's a struggle. It's a struggle that involves oratio, prayer. A struggle also that involves meditatio, meditate, which literally means, of course, Psalm 1, to chew. I did meditate on your law day and night like a cow chewing a cud. That's what that word means in Hebrew. Digest it. Your word was found and I did eat it, said Ezekiel. That's what you need. And you also need tentatio. You need the temptation. You need the struggle. You need the pummeling. Thomas Merton, a Catholic writer, once said, there are private demons that hang like vampires on the soul. Yeah. Luther knew about that. I was, I was talking about this element of struggle 
one time, and then in the Q&A period, somebody said, well, you know, you, the way you present Luther, all the struggle, the devil, so dark. Where's the joy? Where's the happiness? Where's the smiling Luther? Well, you can find him, but you know where you find him usually is with his children. It's usually singing hymns around the fireplace with Katie and the family. There you see a a calmer Luther. There you see a Luther that really knows that there is a victory past the struggle, but it is past the struggle. And I'm afraid today in much of our evangelicalism, we jump too quickly to the smiling Luther and we don't ever go through the struggle. And therefore, it becomes a kind of syrupy sentimentalism. It won't last. It won't get you through the night. You've got to go through the struggle. There is a dark night of the soul. Okay, two more points. Two more angles of vision. Three, the Reformation as ecclesial event. A churchly event. Why did the Reformation happen when it did? Well, a number of factors came together to create a perfect storm in the years leading up to and immediately following Luther's posting of his 95 Theses in 1517. The Fifth Lateran Council, that was a general council of the church, had just met down in Rome, concluded actually in the year 1517. Same year Luther posted his theses. But this council did not recognize the urgent need for reform, though several people tried to point it out. It was the last opportunity the Catholic Church would have to make a course correction prior to the Council of Trent. That was one factor. Also, the new learning, the explosion of knowledge of textual and philological resources that enabled a figure like Luther to take the Greek New Testament of Erasmus and use it as he drafted his 95 Theses and come to a different, deeper, truer understanding of repentance, metanoete, didn't simply mean do penance, as the Vulgate translated it. It meant have a change of mind, of heart, turn around, be converted. That was happening. Invention of the printing press, the advance of Islam into Europe. In other circumstances, in other in another time, here I come back to the Reformation as divine initiative. Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Well, it was also in a sense in the fullness of time that Martin Luther made this stand. At another time, might have just been brushed away. Because his protest against the abuses of indulgences, he was not the first. Even his focus on justification by faith alone, he was not original. And even his appeal to Scripture as the normative authority of faith and practice, that was not a novel teaching. All of these were found in the tradition. And they might have been accommodated within the structure of the medieval Catholic Church in another time. But Luther lived in that chirotic moment when the posting of his theses was 
the thing that triggered so many repercussions that led finally to division. And so it was a churchly event. It was not just a matter of an individual. And we've got to get away from that idea that the Reformation was about individualism, standing alone. Well, um, the Reformation was about what God is doing with his people in this world through the gospel. Uh, Luther did develop the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That was distinctive, not totally unique. Of course, it's there in the Bible, but he did bring it out and gave it a new airing. But it's a doctrine that we have misinterpreted because the priesthood of all believers is not the priesthood of the believer, me, me and Jesus, we got a good thing going, me and him, we got it all worked out, you know that? This is not Luther's doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. It's the priesthood of all believers, plural. It's all of us together in the community of faith, accountable to one another, under the authority of the word of God. And so when Luther stands at Worms and says, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. He's not asserting there the right of private judgment. He says, my conscience is captivated. It's been taken captive. It's been captured by the word of God, the enduring word of God. What you have in modernity is Luther's conscience without the enduring word of God. And so Luther wrote in his commentary on Galatians in 1535, which he thought was the greatest book he ever wrote. This is the reason why our theology is certain. It snatches us away from ourselves and places us outside of ourselves so that we do not depend on our own strength, conscience, experience, person, or works, but depend on that which is outside ourselves, that is, on the promise and truth of God, which cannot deceive. It's a churchly event. You see this, I think, in the power of and the importance of preaching in the Reformation. Yes, there was preaching before the Reformation. The Reformation did not invent preaching. It wasn't like the printing press, something that had just come into being a few decades before. But the Reformation changed preaching in two very significant ways. First of all, the place, the central place it took in the worship of the church. And so in a church like this that is a Protestant church, there is the pulpit at the center of worship. Now, some of you may have been to Beeson Divinity School. You've seen our beautiful chapel. It's beautiful paintings. It's a little bit ornate by most Southern Baptist church building standards. However... Some people come in and say, wow, this looks like a Catholic church. You know, the only people who never say that, Catholics. Because at the heart of our chapel, just like the heart of this church, there is a pulpit. The word of God and the preaching of the word of God is central in Reformation worship. That was one of the new, new things 
Reforma- uh, preaching used to be done before the Reformation outside, out of doors, in the fields, in the marketplaces. The Reformers brought preaching back into the church and made it central to the life of worship. We need to do that today. Second thing was a new theology of preaching. A theology of preaching that focused on the power of preaching to convict of sin, the presence of Christ in the preaching of the Word of God. Although sacramental is not a word we often use with reference to preaching, it's not too strong of a word to use with reference to Luther and Calvin's view of preaching. Because preaching is a word that accomplishes something, that does something. It brings about for a waiting congregation an encounter with the living God. Well, it was an ecclesial event, and that's just one illustration of it. Finally, number four, the Reformation as a movement with a long view of history. Luther lived in an apocalyptic age, and he shared with many of his contemporaries the belief that the world was running out of time. Uh, There was published in 1494, on the very eve of the Reformation, a book called The Ship of Fools, published by Sebastian Brandt in Basel, which portrayed society from the mighty, the kings, the princes, down to the lowly, all of them together on this ship, sailing somewhere, a ship of fools, headed for disaster, headed for an apocalyptic conclusion. Well, this was the world in which Martin Luther lived. He shared the anxieties of his times. He understood himself as living at the very edge of history. He wanted to figure out where he was in the scheme of things, but he never took his own calculations too seriously. There was what we might call an eschatological reserve in Luther's thought. He never wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation, as far as we know, neither did John Calvin, as far as we know. But they understood that there was a purpose of God being worked out in their age and it would lead to, in time, in God's time, the conclusion of this age and the coming again of Jesus Christ. They thought they saw signs of the time all around them. The rise of Islam was one of them. The Hussite revolt was another one. The plagues, the comets in the sky, they were interested in all these things. They believed they were bringing the world closer and closer to the finish line. Though when one of Luther's disciples said that he thought Christ was going to come back on October the 19th, 1535 at 8 o'clock in the morning, that was too much for Luther. He couldn't go along with that. So living at the edge of history does not mean giving license to irresponsible, unbiblical apocalyptic speculations. And it means also that while we're living at the edge of history, we're not to take an easy exit from history. And so uh, I think there's a lesson we can learn here. And that lesson is one that calls for engagement, that calls for us to be more and more, not less and less, involved in the struggle of this world, in its dangers, in its opportunities, As Luther grew older, he grew crankier. I hope that's not true of me. 
that he did. He was ridden with sickness and pain, and he came to see the world more and more as an image of himself, an old gray-haired man tottering along. And there was disappointment in his life near the end because the Reformation had not turned out as he once hoped that it would. When he was a young reformer, still in his early 30s, and things were bursting forth. Get the Bible translated. Get the gospel preached. And soon everybody will be converted. Jesus will come back. And we'll have a hallelujah party. That's what he thought. Didn't happen. There was division within Protestantism. There were the revolts on one side, the despair on the other. But in the midst of all of this, he continued to believe that God was at work in the midst of death. He said, we live and we move forward in the purpose of God. He kept coming back to a verse in the Old Testament. This is one of his favorite Old Testament texts. He quotes it again and again and again. It's Isaiah 55, 11. God's word will not return empty. It will not come back void. It will accomplish that which it has been sent to do. That's a great verse. Good verse for every preacher to remember. You may not have the results you want. You may end your ministry disappointed. Luther did. But the word of God will not come back empty. It will accomplish that which it was intended to do. And so remember what Calvin wrote to the Emperor Charles V. The success is not in our hands. This is not ours to determine or to worry too much about. This belongs in the hands of God. That our job is to be a faithful witness to the very end with everything that we've got and the confidence that the word would not return void. If the world should come to an end tomorrow, I will still plant a little apple tree today. That saying has been attributed to Martin Luther, although some think maybe it came from a proverb and not from him. But nonetheless, it does capture something of the hopefulness with which he lived. If the world should come to an end tomorrow, I'll plant an apple tree today. The word will not return void. And so we can live with hopefulness despite the ragings of the evil one. Don't forget the struggle. And in the confidence of the faith, the faith in which we live and by which we die. This is Martin Luther, and this is the Reformation. This is what they thought they were about. I commend it to you. Thank you very much. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern 
or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.